You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good to see you all this morning. What a joy it's been to worship the Lord in song already. Thank you, Chris and team, for leading us in song. And what precious gospel truths we've already sung. And so if you're a kindergartner, first grader, looks like you guys already know what you're doing. So go on to Bible study with Miss Beth over there. And, uh, and for the rest of us, let me invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 20. So Grayson read Leviticus 19 for us. We're going to look at both chapter 19 and 20 this morning. This is your first time here with us this morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church, and we've been working chapter by chapter through the book of Leviticus, this oft-neglected book in the Old Testament. And so far we've seen that even though this is a book of law, this is a book filled with so much grace as it points towards God's ultimate plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. So we're going to continue reading. We're going to begin in chapter 20, and I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll pray and ask God for help as we dive into these two chapters from this book. So Leviticus 20, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him and whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums, necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, He has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the 
children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among the people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land. And I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that, Lord, as we look at these legal passages of law after law, punishment after punishment, Lord, in so many ways, this world described in Leviticus 19 and 20 feels so foreign to us. But Father, we know that this is your good word. And Father, we know that even in the law, there are evidences as a signpost pointing towards the grace of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we look into the intricacies of this text and seek to unpack it, and Lord, as I attempt to explain it, Father, I pray Lord, that we would not be burdened by the law this morning, but Lord, that we would take comfort that even in our disobedience, even in our failure, you provide grace as the God who sanctifies. And Lord, that as you sanctify us, Lord, may you empower us by your spirit to be holy as you are holy, as your church and as your covenant people. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So my my youngest brother, his name is Shan, he is right in the thick of law school right now. He just completed his first year. In fact, I was messaging him a little bit this past week. He did some summer classes, and so he's finishing up uh, some exams and all sorts of complicated tests that he has to take. And and he came to visit us, uh, I guess, last, last December, right after his first semester of law school. And as a new law student, we decided to to test his knowledge of the law by asking all sorts of hypothetical legal questions to see if we could stump him. And apparently his professors at the University of South Carolina Law School warned him that when he goes home on Christmas break, you're going to be bombarded with all sorts of questions from your family about the law. He says you're, you're, that's going to happen. It happens to every first, first semester law student, but be very careful 
Because even though you are a student of law, you are very much a novice. (laughs) You didn't want him to get cocky, thinking he knew it all already, because in many ways, he knew just enough law to be dangerous as he studied that first semester. Because the more I talked with him about the the law, the, the more complicated the legal code seemed to become. We imagined uh, all sorts of vast hypothetical scenarios that required really elaborate interpretations and explanations and applications of the legal code. No wonder there are so many lawyers out there, right? They're, they're necessary evil in a lot of ways, right? Because it's so confusing. We need, we need somebody to help us navigate it. Who can understand the American legal system? Certainly our Supreme Court doesn't seem to be able to, right? But, but, but you may feel this sense of confusion as you look to Leviticus 19 and 20. As you look at some of these laws here in this passage, it can seem complicated, tedious, even a bit confusing, particularly if you're unfamiliar with, with Leviticus and the genre of law. And plus, there's this whole different context that this law was given. This law was given for the theocracy of Israel. So Levitical law is very different than American law. We are a democratic republic, our form of government. Israel was not. It was a divine monarchy with God as their king. So much of the legislation that we read here is, is very explicitly Not for us, but it's being applied directly to ancient Israel back when this covenant is first being established. So even though a lot of these laws aren't in application today because the theocracy of Israel is is not where we live, there there is a lot of important lessons that these two chapters in particular teach us about who God is, who we are, and our need for his mercy. So one of the things we see is that God is is holy, and as this holy God rescues his people Israel, he expected them to be holy as he is holy. He had called them out of the slavery of Egypt. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. He's given them his law. He's given them his covenant. He's given them his commandments, and he expected that as they are getting ready to enter into that promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, God wants his people to be distinct. He's getting ready to drive out the Canaanites for a lot of these evil and wicked practices that God forbids here in Leviticus 19 and 20. And he does not want his people that represent his name to go and live just like the Canaanites once they get into the land of flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. So there's a key lesson here for Israel, but also for us who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And here's here's the summary of our message this morning that our holy God expects holiness from his people. Our holy God expects holiness from his people. So as we work through this text, we're going to try to to flow out the the very nature and, and, and the heart of the gospel. And as we look at this first point here, I want to focus on God's expectation. God's expectation, particularly as we look at chapter 19, verse 1 through 36. So what is, what is God's expectation? Well, Leviticus 18 through 20, the, these three chapters kind of function as a, as a whole, as a section of Leviticus, if you will, dealing with this theme of holiness. 
So if you were here last week, we looked at Leviticus 18. And Leviticus 18 lists a lot of forbidden sexual behaviors. Leviticus 20 focuses on the punishment to be given for those behaviors. And Leviticus 19 kind of sits right in the, the middle of this section of this, these three chapters. And though I'm personally convinced that I think Leviticus 16 is sort of the thematic and literary center of the book of Leviticus, there are some that have argued that, that the center is actually Leviticus 19. That this is actually where, where the, the thematic center of the book is, and they make some compelling reasons for that. Because as we've seen in the first half of the book of Leviticus, it addresses how Israel was to approach their God. And so God gives all these sacrifices and rules and establishes the priesthood so that Israel could come and dwell in the presence of God around the tabernacle. And then the second half of Leviticus, as we're beginning to see, really deals with the theme of holiness. So Leviticus 19 helps us see really the heart of, of God's expectations and desires for his people. As God dwells with his people in relationship with them, he expects them to live holy lives, reflecting and mirroring his own character. So wh why does God expect this? Why does God want his people to be holy? Why is this such a, a, a recurring theme in Leviticus, particularly the second half? Well, well remember God's redemptive plan aims to undo sin that has been unleashed by fallen humanity. So when sin came into the world, remember, estrangement came with it, separation. That after sin, there is alienation between God and man. The first man and woman are, are kicked out of God's presence, kicked out of the garden. And so because God is holy, pure, and righteous, sin in his presence then would taint and diminish his holiness. And so because God is radically God-centered, he must protect that which is the greatest good, which is himself, that which is good and glorious and righteous and holy. God must protect that lest he cease to be God. So the man and woman are exiled, kicked out east of Eden. But all of Leviticus has been God's attempt to restore a relationship with humanity with his people through the covenant he's establishing with Israel. So this covenant is all made by God's initiative, right? He's the one that delivered his people. He's the one that made the promise all the way back to Abraham, right? This God has been the one initiating by his grace and sustaining this relationship by his grace. And so this relationship between God and Israel, as we've already seen in Leviticus, is, is kind of strenuous and a, and a little fragile. At any moment, Sin could rupture again God's relationship with this covenant people. We've seen that with Nadab and Abihu. So, so God provided by his grace sacrificial offerings so that his people can have their sins forgiven, not just at first, but, but after the relationships established because he knew that they were going to keep on sinning. So this whole sacrificial system is meant to deal with the problem of sin. And so through the blood of atonement, God and Israel's relationship was to continue and be sustained. But as God's people come near to him, God's people must be holy as he is holy. That if they are to dwell with God, if they are to commune with him, if they are to represent him in the world, then Israel had to live distinctly, live in a way that pleased 
the Lord. But what is God's holiness? You ever try to define that word? It's kind of one of those Christian jargon terms. It's an important word, a biblical word. But it's a word we kind of throw around a lot, but we're not really entirely sure what it means. Well, how, do, how would we define it? Well, let me take a stab. God's holiness is the intrinsic beauty and purity of his comprehensive righteousness and character. So it's, it's his intrinsic beauty and purity of his comprehensive righteousness and character. In other words, this, is, this gets to the very essence of who God is, his goodness, his righteousness. This is a, a term, God's holiness, in which many systematic theologians call a summary attribute, a attribute of God, encapsulating kind of the very essence of his, of his character. Think of all what it means to be God, his love, his grace, his compassion, his gentleness, his, his, his mercy, his wrath. All of that is bound up and kind of the summary attribute of, of God's character. And this is intrinsic to who God is. This is the very essence of his being. And so as God's people represent their God and live with their God, they are to be holy like their, their God is holy. They are to live in a way that is consistent with the character of their God. Consistent with the character of their God. So the holiness of God ought to, to be mirrored by his people his love, his purity, his mercy, his justice, all of that should be represented in the world as God's people mirror and reflect God's own character, his holiness, his intrinsic beauty and worth and, and value. God's identity is the grounds for his expectation of his people's holiness. God's identity is what's driving. This is why they must be holy, because their God is holy. Look, look at just chapter 19, verse 2. Look at, look at what the word says. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. How many times we've seen that phrase recur throughout the book of Leviticus? Repeatedly, God connects his expectations for the way his people live their lives. He connects that expectation to his own identity. How many times did we hear this morning? I am the Lord your God, after God gives a command. I am the Lord your God. This phrase not only communicates God's divine authority, which it certainly does, but God is also connecting here his commands to his own identity, his own holiness. So God has saved Israel. God has brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's atoned for their sins through sacrifice. He's brought them into his presence and he's reminded them over and over again of his fellowship and communion with them. Hence the mention of the peace offering in chapter 19, verse five, again, that he has fellowship with his people. God has done all of this so that his people might dwell with him. And so holiness was the requirement lest that fellowship be severed yet again by the people's sin. So Leviticus 19 addresses a litany, a lots, lots of different laws that emphasize this call to holiness. So rather than going through verse by verse through each of these different laws that God gives here in chapter 19, let's, let's go through them by summary and commenting on a few of the, the more confusing ones as we go. So you have noticed that many of the Ten Commandments, if you were listening carefully to when, when Grayson was reading the text, you'll notice that a lot of the Ten Commandments are kind of sprinkled throughout this chapter. And of course, there are a lot of ways that we could try to summarize what these laws say here, but, but I think 
no one summed up the law better than Jesus has. So I'm not going to even try to do a better job. I want to use his categories. And what was Jesus' categories? Well, he tells us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's, let's think through these categories that Jesus gives us for how we ought to understand the law. So let's first think through loving the Lord, and then we'll think through loving our neighbor. So what are some of these laws that deal with loving the Lord? Well, well Israel was expected to love, to worship the Lord exclusively. They were to worship the Lord alone and be holy by worshiping him. So verse 3 and verse 4 mentioned the Sabbath, and it forbidden the, grave, uh, the graving of, of images, of idols. Verse 5 through 8 also dealt with love with the Lord. For example, Israel rejected, they were to reject pagan practices such as the consultation of mediums or necromancers, and though, for example, now tattoos are, are a matter of Christian liberty, for Israel, it was an issue of worship because so much of the, the tattooing and the cutting was associated with, with pagan activities of worship. So Israel, the, the theme that we see is Israel must be, love the Lord their God. They must be holy by, by worshiping the Lord alone. In addition, Israel was to submit to God's authority as the creator, as their divine king, respecting the categories of creation that he has established. So thus, Israel was forbidden to crossbreed animals or cross-germinate plants. You're not to violate God's created categories. In verse 19, we get an interesting command here. They're not to wear a garment made of two different materials. So this was, seems kind of arbitrary to us, but, but it had a purpose. God is forbidding anyone from dressing like a priest who did wear mixed garments. So God is trying to preserve the worship of his people, clarifying these are who the priests are and these are who the priests aren't. So you weren't to, to dress like a priest, lest those categories be confused and false worship be done. In their holiness, Israel was to worship God alone. They were to obey him and love him according to his word. And so they rejected the pagan practices of worship. They were to be holy to their God. And Israel was also to be holy through their love of neighbor. That's another big thing we see in chapter 19. They are to love their neighbor, reflecting God's own character. They are to show compassion and generosity, even to the least of these. You get laws like when it's harvest time and you bring in your crops, Israel was to leave portions of the field left untouched for the poor as, as a sort of welfare system for the day. Like Ruth would, would glean the fields of, of Boaz. and Go read the book of Ruth for that. Israel was to treat sojourners, foreigners, people who weren't around, right? They were to treat them with mercy and justice. You didn't just treat people poorly because they were an illegal alien or they didn't belong or they weren't a native. Everyone was to be treated with fairness and honesty, even the disabled people, God says, even the deaf and the blind, those that are often most abused by society. God says, no, Israel, reflecting my own character, my own holiness, you are to love the least of these. In addition, Israel must, have, must, must be obedient in their business dealings, be fair in their balances and their measurements. And then a confusing law is given in verse 20 through 22 of chapter 19. You can, you can go over there and look at it. This is such a strange law, and it, it, it seems like 
something legal experts, I'm sure, would debate exactly its interpretation. And due to the, the distance of time, it's, it's difficult for us to fully understand what is going on here just because we don't live in this world. Although Israel, I think, would have clearly understood what was going on here. But let me try to explain what's going on in this rather confusing law. So it's a difficult situation. It's, it's complex, but this law is dealing with honesty and with the breaking of an oath. And in Israel's law system, the breaking of an oath was a serious violation demanding a guilt offering. So this gets into ancient Israel betrothal engagement marriage practices a bit. So in ancient Israel, a betrothal was a serious engagement. It was much more serious than engagements are taken today. And it signified by both an oath, a pledge, I'm going to marry that person, and also a payment or a ransom is what the text uses here. So verse 20 through 22 describes a situation where a man has pledged, he's made an oath to marry a woman, but he had not yet paid the bridal price, the ransom to free her and to actually engage her and be betrothed. So a man has made a pledge, but he's not yet made the payment. So they're not technically engaged, but an oath has been made. But then another man sleeps with this woman And since a ransom had not yet been given, it was not technically a betrothal, but the man's oath had been broken, which is a serious offense. So this was not a case of adultery, as we find out in Leviticus 20, deserves the penalty of death. But this is a case of fornication. And as typical of fornication, the couple was required to get married in light of their sexual union. But if the fornicating couple got married... It forced the breaking of the other man's oath who pledged to marry her. So that was a serious sin, a violation. So how do you resolve that? How do you deal with it honestly? Well, a guilt offering was given not only for the sin of fornication, but also for the breaking of the oath of the pledge. That's complex. But the point is pretty simple. Israel was to deal honestly with one another, no matter how complicated the situation may be. Integrity was what was most important. Well, we could spend a lot more time, you know, talking through each of these laws, but, but the, don't miss the, the forest for the trees of what's going on here in Leviticus 19. God is making his expectations clear. Israel is to exhibit holiness by loving their God alone and by loving their neighbor. That's what God is expecting of his people. It's how Jesus sums up the law. It's easy to get nitty-gritty lost in in the interpretation of this law or what does this law mean, and and some of that we have a hard time figuring out just due to the distance of time. But Jesus says, don't miss the point. The point is God expects us to love him alone and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's God's expectation. That's God's standard for us. But as we trace Israel's history, and as we look at our own biography, we see that often we fail God's expectation. We don't love him exclusively. We don't love our neighbor as he commands us. And that leads us to the second point I want to draw out for us, our failure, our failure. And that leads us to the opening of chapter 20, verse 1 through 21. So Leviticus 20 gives punishments for breaking the laws, mostly found in Leviticus 18. So we won't recap the reason for why some of these behaviors are are forbidden and others aren't. For that, I would refer you back to last week's sermon from Leviticus 18 if you want to get more into those specifics. But I do want to consider the punishment 
for breaking those laws listed here in Leviticus 20, the consequences, if you will. So the punishment for many of these commandment violations were, were not small little fines, but for a lot of these commandment violations, the penalty was death. It was death. In the case of a child sacrificed to Molech or to sexual immorality, the penalty was death. Now, the penalty seems excessive to us, perhaps even unjust if we're, if we're being honest about it. And if the punishment fits the crime, then maybe we can sort of understand the death penalty for a child sacrifice. After all, it would be life for life. But the penalty of death for adultery, now that seems a little over the top to us. Why did God prescribe this punishment for his people. Well, well, let me nuance the question just a little bit as we look at this, these, these, these important questions we need to ask of the text. Well, one of the first things we have to understand is we are not trying to determine this morning whether the death penalty is a good idea or a bad idea today. Many good Bible-believing Christians differ and disagree on whether we should be practicing capital punishment today. That's a conversation that goes beyond the focus of our message that we can spend another time thinking through together. Another thing we have to remember, though, as we look to Leviticus 20, is that this punishment was for the theocracy of ancient Israel. Very important to remember as we look at these legal codes. Leviticus 20 is not advocating for America to adopt this practice today. That's, that's not what this text is doing. We live under the new covenant, not under the old. And we don't live in the theocracy of Israel. We live in the democratic republic called the United States of America. And despite how you may hear people speak, we are not Israel, nor is America's God's covenant people. Right? Those are important things that, that we need to caveat. So it would be a mishandling of the text for you to call your congressman tomorrow and to demand a law being passed for punishment of capital punishment for the sin of adultery. Right, that would be a mishandling of the text, be wrong. So as we try to grasp the original context here, as we try to address the audience for this chapter, why then does God hand the death sentence down in these particular cases? Well, there, there are two main reasons God does that for his theocracy of Israel here. The first is the purity of the community, and the second is the holiness of God's name. The first, the purity of the community, and the second, the holiness of God's name. For purity, for the purity of the community, we have to remind ourselves, as Jesus tells us, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin is a community problem. It's a cancer that eventually starts in an individual, but if left untreated, untaken care of, it will swell up and grow and engulf the whole community. So an Israelite sacrifice of a child to an idol or an adulterer that was tolerated in the community might encourage and promote that behavior amongst the people of God. So to address a potential spread of sinful behaviors, some of these more public and carnal sins, God demanded the penalty of death as a warning of the seriousness of these commandment violations and to prevent these behaviors from spreading from among the people. In the case of the church, I think that principle is very much the same, isn't it? Sin spreads like a cancer in the community. Now, don't worry. I know some of you are, are, are a little frightened. We don't execute our members when they sin, right? 
but we do discipline one another, right? We do, we do confront one another in sin because we love one another and because we want to protect one another and we want to protect the community of God. So part of this is an act of love to, to concern and to confront one another in sin and to guard against its deceitfulness. But, but our concern really is for the purity of the church. That's why we address sin in one another's lives. Sin tolerated in the church gets permeated through the church. Sin tolerated in the church gets permeated through the church. How does that work? Well, I've been in pastoral ministry long enough. I've, I've seen it happen. One church gossip is a problem. A church gossip left uncorrected is divisive in spirit. And that one gossip eventually becomes four. And that four become eight. And before long, after many years, there is a devastation of gossip and divisiveness in the body because sin had gone unchecked, uncorrected. This is what, what, what part of what God is doing here with Israel. When the, church turns, when the church turns a blind eye towards known sexual sin, the behavior is copied by the rest of the community, believing that the church either approves of that behavior or is too cowardly to confront such sin. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So God is concerned that these sorts of abominable practices might be spread throughout his holy nation if they're not treated as serious sins. So he handed down the punishment of death. But there's also an aspect of God's holiness here, God's holiness. Of course, the purity of the community is at play here. But there's also the aspect of God's holiness because Israel is a theocracy the behaviors of the people directly impact the reputation of the king. Israel's sin, in particular, as God's covenant people, if they sin, they would bring dishonor to their holy God. That, that the name of Yahweh, their God, would be smeared by the filthy lies of his people before the watching world. In a sense, these sins described in Leviticus 20 and the severity of the punishment, the reason it's so severe is because these were these were sins of rebellion, of, of treason against the king. And thus an Israelite who would be willing to openly and flagrantly defy the God and king of Israel would profane the name of the Lord. They would mock him and they would scoff at his rule. So thus the, the penalty of death was not excessive. And it certainly wasn't unjust. Rather, it was exactly what the offender deserved. And this is what we so often forget. This is what our sins deserve as well. This is what we, we so easily cast aside and forget today. We minimize our sin. We don't think it's a big deal. But the Bible's clear. The wages of sin is, is death, is death. Every one of us deserves this penalty. Every one of us deserves capital punishment from the divine king. The law states God's standard. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 20, if you fail and fall into sin, there is death. And we follow in Israel's pattern. God has given us his expectation. We fail his standard. We deserve his judgment, wrath, and penalty of death for our sins. You see, what ought to shock us is not that on certain sins, God demanded the consequences of death but rather that God has been so patient 
in our sin that he is yet to strike us down where we stand. It is an act of God's mercy that you take your next breath this morning. In God's loving kindness, he has held back the floodgates of his fury. What ought to surprise us is not God's wrath, but his grace. So God gives his expectation. We fail that expectation. We deserve God's judgment. But praise be to the Lord that God gives grace to lawbreakers like you and I. And that leads to the third point this morning, God's grace. God's grace. Look at verse verse 7 through 8. Though Leviticus is a book of law, I, I hope that you've begun to see that this book of law is filled with God's grace and his love. Not only was it an act of grace for God to even deliver Israel and establish his covenant with them, but he has made provision by atonement for their sins so that they could come near. Leviticus is the story of, of God's love for his people to overcome the wall of sin that separates them so that he might fellowship with them. So the law in its entirety is an act of mercy that points forward in anticipation to God's ultimate solution in Jesus Christ. Even in the sections of Leviticus, like chapter 20, filled with punishments, there are reminders of God's grace. Did you catch it? Look at verse 7 and verse 8. Look at what God says. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. And be holy, for I am the Lord. God, keep my statutes and do them. Check this out. I am the Lord your God who sanctifies you. Leviticus shows us God's good standard. It shows us how we fail that standard. And that it takes an act of God's gracious working that any one of us might be called holy. He is the God who sanctifies you see, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard a lot of the law as you were growing up. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this behavior, but do this behavior. A lot of times, as we grew up in the church, a lot of times all that was heard were, were rules and regulations. In fact, if you're, if you're not a Christian, that might be your perception of the church. Man, these people care about their rules. You think that the church is a, a bunch of selfish and self-righteous people who think they are holier than thou and they look onto the world with condescension and pride. And sadly, many people go to church and all they hear is the law. And they think, well, this is what Christianity must be all about then. Rules and behaviors and morals. So they leave the church thinking they heard what Christianity is all about but actually missing the gospel and missing Jesus. Friend, if you're one of those people, I, I want to be very clear. I want you to hear the true gospel this morning, that you can't obey the law, but there, there is one who did. That you can't meet God's standard, but there was one who achieved it. That you can't be righteous, but there is one who possessed it. And you can't be holy, but there is a Savior who sanctifies. God has sent his son Jesus for us, to us. Jesus lived a life of holiness, and he took on our death and punishment 
He was nailed to the tree. He was punished for you and me. And Jesus' blood cleanses us and it sanctifies us. And Jesus does what we cannot do for ourselves. This is what Christianity is all about. The Bible isn't a a bunch of rules that, that describe what we must obey in order for God to accept us. Rather, it's about a God who gives grace to lawbreakers and rebels like us. It is about a God who in his mercy and love and kindness sanctifies a people. And to receive this gift of salvation, we must simply turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. We confess that we were wrong. We confess that we have sinned. And then we turn to Jesus who transforms us. And so if you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ today, I urge you, turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. We here at Redemption Church, we are a bunch of sinners who have been sanctified and are being sanctified by Jesus. We don't have it all figured out. We are not perfect. We sin. It's one of the reasons why we confess our sins every Sunday, because even in Christ, there's still lingering sin in our life that Jesus is saving us from and and growing us and sanctifying us. We're not perfect. but We are happy to lock arms with you and walk with you towards the one who is so that you might receive his salvation, his grace, his mercy, and so be transformed by the Holy Spirit as God sanctifies you. And this is wonderful good news, that Jesus Christ saves us. He gives us his righteousness, so we're accepted on on his righteousness, not our own. And then God gives us the, the Holy Spirit as we believe in him, and he transforms our heart, and he empowers us to obey the Lord, and to live holy lives. And that leads, fourthly, to our holiness. Our holiness. We see this at the very end of chapter 20, as things kind of come back full circle. So we've seen God's standard this morning. We've seen our failure to achieve that standard. We've seen that we've deserved judgment, but that there is one who, who meets us where we are, who saves us, who meets God's standard and by his blood cleanses us and empowers us for holiness. This is very, very important. We can only live a holy life if we have come to Christ and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way you can live a holy life. If you're hearing law this morning and and rules and standards and expectations, yes, they are there and you fail them, so come to Christ. But for This section here, this fourth point, this is very clearly, explicitly for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have been saved, who have been washed clean, and who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. So as we look at the end of Leviticus 20, we see God's call for his people to holiness. Look particularly at chapter 20, verse 26, this kind of conclusion here. He says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is important for us to understand the the flow of of what God is doing in the great work of redemption, that God is, is calling out a people out of sin, and he saves us by his grace, and then he sets us apart as his people to be distinct and holy. This is the call of our lives together in Christ Jesus. The same call to personal holiness that God gives to his covenant people, Israel, is the same call that God gives to you and I 
in Jesus Christ as his church. Flip over in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to, to see God's word here. 1 Peter chapter 1. One, uh, verse 13 through 19. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 19. Listen for Peter's citation of Leviticus. Look at, look at what Peter says, starting chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You see, God has, has ransomed us by the blood of Christ out of the former sins that we used to walk, the former ways that we used to live, that our fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, that they all lived in the sin that we knew. God has called us out of that paganism, out of that idolatry, out of that sin. And he saved us by the merit of Christ, not our own merit, but he has given us the Holy Spirit so that we might then become obedient children conform not to the former patterns of our ignorance, but conform to the holiness of God. We are to be holy as he is holy. And this, this is my prayer for us here at Redemption Church. We are a church that loves the gospel and that loves the grace of God. And I pray that we never lose the intensity of that love However, we have to also understand and guard ourselves against, against a potential misunderstanding. See, remember, this is so important, that growing in grace is growing in holiness. Growing in grace is growing in holiness. As Christians, God has called us out of sin so that we might reflect his holy character before the watching world. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, how are you mirroring God's holiness in your life? Are you? Is your life defined by a love of God and a love of neighbor? Or is your life filled with sin, contradicting the gospel that you are proclaiming? You see, I believe that this is one of the reasons why God has led us to study the book of Leviticus as, as Redemption Church. And this is one of the key lessons we have to hear and apply, that as God's people saved by grace in Jesus Christ, he has called us to live a holy life together, empowered by the Spirit. And so church, may we never use grace as an excuse for our sin or a license for our sin, but rather day by day, may we repent of lingering sin in our hearts, sins of action, sins of thought, sins of attitude. And then may we together run to Christ for help. And may we mature together in the Lord. And, and may our young church plant resemble with increasing clarity the character of the God who has saved us and birthed us. You see, as we approach our, our first anniversary as a congregation, as a covenant people, 
This is my hope for, for our church, that we would grow in holiness and maturity and grace. That when people look to us in our city, I, I don't want their takeaway to be, man, our worship team sounds fantastic. Great worship, great music. Well, that's certainly true. Or I don't want their takeaway to be, well, man, look at that children's ministry. Or or look at their slick graphics and and their media. Or or look how casual they are. They don't even wear coats and ties. Isn't that cool? Or or look at their neat programs and their ministry offerings that they have. Or or their great Facebook and and website. Uh, uh, That's not my desire for our community to look into us. And that's their takeaway. I want these people in the city of Wilson to look into our people, look into Redemption Church and say, that is a holy people, holy people. There's something distinct about them, something peculiar, something a little unusual. This is a people that love Jesus, that love one another, and that love their city. So church, may we as a congregation represent Christ faithfully by displaying his holiness in our life and mission together. And that's a key takeaway here, right? Holiness and mission go hand in hand. Those two can't be separated. If we go about our city proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the world, but yet our lives are marred and sin, then the world will not heed the message that we have to proclaim. But if we lock arms together, And if we constantly are confessing sin, repenting sin, and walking together in Jesus and loving the Lord and loving our neighbors and loving our city, then our world will lean in. Our city will lean in and wonder what's going on in this community. And the answer we will tell them is Jesus. It's Jesus. His grace, his redemption has saved us and washed us clean and has called us together And we are trying to be holy as he is holy, not by our own power, but by God's sheer mercy and grace through the gift of his spirit. So church, where there is sin in your life, repent of it. Repent of it. We are going to sin. We're not going to always be holy as as our God is holy. But may we be quick to repent, not slow, quick, falling on our knees, confessing our sin, being reminded of God's grace, and then striving together holding one another accountable, building one another up, edifying one another in the name of the Lord. You see, we have a God who has saved us and we have a God who is sanctifying us. So church, let us be holy as he is holy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help. Lord, if anything, we've seen in Leviticus this morning that your law sets a standard an expectation of perfection, a standard in which we fail to meet. And Lord, you are a holy and righteous and good God. And Father, we are thankful that your law reveals your standard so that we might know it. And Lord, we know that your standard is good and righteous, but Father, because we are sinners, we fall short, we rebel, we disobey. But Lord, we are grateful that even in our failure, you have provided grace through your son, Jesus Christ, to wash us clean from our sin and who sanctifies us with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who has yet to hear the gospel truly, who has yet to believe in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray 
that they would not think of the Christian faith as simply a bunch of morals and rules to follow, but Lord, that they would see their sin this morning and fall on their needs in dependence upon Jesus for their salvation. Lord, that today they would, they would confess their inability, confess their sin and trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord, and so be saved. And Lord, that you might begin within them by your spirit, the process of sanctifying them, conforming them to the pattern of holiness in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that belong to this body, who are a part of this covenant community called Redemption Church, Father, you have called all of us out of darkness into light. You have saved us, redeemed us, washed us clean. You've called us out of the former ways, the the patterns of ignorance of our forefathers. And Father, you are calling us now to live in the light of the grace that you've given us, to be holy as you are holy. So God, we ask your help for this. Father, we are sinners and our sin lingers in our hearts and our attitudes and our affections. And Father, our desire is that as we grow together as a community, Lord, that we would grow into deeper maturity and holiness and purity. Father, that we would be a community that doesn't shy away from our sin, but that readily confesses it and then remind each other of the grace we have in Jesus. Father, I pray that as our city looks into us, or that the peculiarity of our holiness would get their attention and their gaze and their ears. And Lord, that as we live holy lives, that our proclamation of the gospel would be heard. And Lord, so that your name might go throughout all the earth from your people, Redemption Church, as we proclaim the gospel. So Father, we ask that you would do all of this In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.